David McCullough, your new book, The Pioneers. Why that title? Because it's about a group of very brave and I feel noble people, Americans, who went west in the last part of the 19th, 18th century to found the first legal community settlement in all of what was called the Northwest Territory, that territory north and west of the Ohio River, which would ultimately make up five very famous and important states, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, and Wisconsin. And it was an area as large as all of the original 13 colonies, 13 states, and there was nobody as yet living there except Native Americans and wolves and bears and rattlesnakes and you name it. But there was also fabulous deep soil, and this was a group of people who were veterans of the Revolutionary War, and they had been paid in what was then the longest war in our history, except up until the time of Vietnam, eight and a half years. They'd been paid in what was called scrip, and it was virtually worthless. It was only maybe 10 cents on the dollar. So this was a way to compensate that for the veterans, so that most of them at the start were veterans of the revolution. And they were people who were used to hard work and, and uh, adversity, not just in the war, but in, on the, the farms of New England, which were sh shallow soil, lots of stones. And here was the opportunity to start anew and uh, with everything imaginable, but all of which would take an enormous amount of work and they would have to face adversities and setbacks and sufferings, the likes of which they had never experienced or even imagined. And to me, their courage and their determination to succeed with highly a highly admirable American way of life, including, most importantly, no, no slavery, uh, is one of the most important stories in our history, and one which, uh, and this group is a subject that has been virtually ignored. And I knew nothing about it before I got going, and I only got going because of pure luck and accelerating curiosity. If who were these people? How did they do it? Why did they do it? And what do we owe them? What for what should we be, be ever grateful? that they accomplished. And there's lots, lots of, of hard, beautiful, admirable accomplishment. And in many ways, we're a bunch of softies compared to what they put up with and what they accomplished. I want to read back to you what you wrote in your acknowledgments. These were two of the very best research days ever. The material beyond anything expected, and the librarians and Marietta history specialists among the best and most good-natured I've ever worked with, the time spent has expanded my feeling for the subject in a way nothing else could have. Who are you talking about? Well, several people, but primarily Linda Showalter, who um, 
I worked with a, a great number of marvelous archivists and librarians over the years in some of the finest libraries in our country or even in the world. But I've never worked with anyone quite so skilled and devoted and pleasant spirited anywhere. And I thought, well, she probably went to Wellesley or Smith or something like that and then did her graduate work at Columbia or typical Eastern arrogance that I have lived much of my life with. And I said, Linda, where, where are you from originally? She said, here, meaning Marietta. I said, where'd you go to college? She said, here, Marietta College. I said, where'd you do your graduate work? She said, here. I said, where did you get your first job? Here. And she is fabulous. And it was a good lesson that you don't have to be in big-time educational institutions to get a great education. And Marietta College, now that I've spent more than almost three years coming and going from there, I think it's one of the finest places to go. anyone could go to college. Um, I'd be happy if any of my grandchildren were to go there or anybody that has aspirations for almost anything. And um, the town is infinitely interesting. It's history everywhere you look. Um, it's still on a, one of the most beautiful locations imaginable, right? At the confluence of the Ohio and, and Muskingum rivers. And it also, of course, strongly evokes my boyhood upbringing in Pittsburgh. Let me show you a map that we got uh, to put on the screen here of Pittsburgh. And you see things like Fort Wayne, that the name Wayne pops up in your book. But more importantly, the Allegheny River coming along there at the top, the Ohio River there at the junction going the other way, but down to Marietta, and the Monongahela River. What, what does that, when you see that, what, is, what do you remember from your childhood? Oh, my goodness. Well, I grew up not far from the University of Pittsburgh in what's called Point Breeze, or the East End. And um, we would go, get on a bus or a streetcar as kids and go down to the Carnegie Library, Carnegie Museum. And, um, and it was a very important, though I didn't realize at the time, the, the Carnegie Library and the Carnegie Museum and the Carnegie Art Gallery and the Carnegie Concert Hall are all under the same roof. In other words, all part of the same process of creativity and learning so that you could go and uh, stand in awe in front of the skeleton of a giant dinosaur and then go upstairs or down the hall and upstairs to look at some of the greatest paintings ever done. Or you could go down to the music hall and listen to a concert. Or you could walk down another hall and you're in the library. And it was, it was a, a place of learning. And we could come and go as kids um, on our own. If it was a rainy Saturday or down we go. And, um, and, and the, as, as Mark Twain showed us... Um, in his work, river towns are story towns. And I grew up hearing stories at home, at the dinner table, 
from my father or mother or grandmother about the, the terrible fires, the strikes, the um, uh, floods of past times in Pittsburgh, some of the weird characters in my own family, and I loved it. So th th I didn't realize that was history at the time. Of course, it was. And and it was such an interesting time. World War II was full force, and the mills were going night and day. The sky at night was red because of the mills, blast furnaces. And when you went to close your bedroom window in the morning, there'd be what looked like black sand on the windowsill, and that was the grit the, from the mills. And we didn't know that the air was foul, that the rivers were polluted, and there were many sunny days that were just fine. And at school, we were told, Pittsburgh is helping to win the war. And we went out and had what were called the junior commandos, where we collected scrap and collected fat. It was turned in to help the war effort. So we were taking part in the defense and the, and the potential, we were confident, victory of our side in a way that gave us pride in where we were, where we were living and what we were doing to help a good, ultimately, all-important cause. And that, that wasn't something that anybody had to teach us. That was just in the spirit of the moment. And, um, and we had wonderful teachers. The uh, principal—I'm probably going on too long about this, but the principal of our school, grade school, Carolyn D. Patterson, Miss Patterson, who had a yardstick by her desk in her office, and that was what supposedly she spanked you with if you did anything bad. I don't know if she ever did, but it was there as a reminder. And she'd come walking down that hall in her sort of sturdy, old, high-heeled shoes. It was a marble hall, and you'd hear that boom, boom, boom coming down, the hall, and you'd all straighten up. That woman helped find found WQED, which is the first PBS station in the country. She saw to it that we had a symphony orchestra in the grade school, and that the students who played in the orchestra went to hear the Pittsburgh Symphony regularly. Um, that art and music and books were all part of learning. It wasn't just arithmetic and, and spelling and all that. She was marvelous. And, and it continued on through high school, and I just will ever be extremely grateful that I grew up where I did, where the Monongahela meets the Allegheny, and they formed that broad Ohio. So when I had the chance now to have the, the Ohio be a major influence, major factor, major character in a book that I was going to write, I was thrilled beyond words. Let me show you another map, uh, which will fit in with what we're talking about. This is from Pittsburgh... The Ohio River, there it is. all the way down across yep. Indiana, Illinois. And how did you find this story? Uh, and it starts, I mean, the Ohio starts, I mean, we're looking at it from Pittsburgh on, but how, and Mar Marietta is where, about halfway down the... Uh, yes, you see, the river is going south. It's not going west. It's going southwest. And right about where it turns, 
uh, to go west is where Marietta is. In other words, about 90 miles down the river from Pittsburgh. And I only came upon this incredible collection that the book's based on because I was invited in 2004 to give the commencement speech at uh, Ohio University, and they were celebrating their 200th anniversary. And I knew relatively little about the university at that point, and I, so I did the homework. I found out it was the first university west of the Allegheny Mountains. It was um, launched by the people who are in my book, who went west as a group. And it was launched by a man named Cutler. And the oldest building on the campus was called Cutler Hall, which dated back to about 1810 or 4. So I thought, well, who was Cutler? So I got interested in Cutler and found out that he was one of the most fascinating men I'd ever, Americans I'd ever read about. Where was he from? He was from what's now called Hamilton, Massachusetts. He was a minister of the church there, and the church and the parsonage still stand. Did it matter to you that but, both of you went to Yale? Of course. <laughs> yes, I discovered he went to Yale, and then I discovered that two of his children, his oldest children, and particularly his oldest son, was born on Martha's Vineyard, where my, my dear wife's family have been associated and part of for, I think, four or five generations. And, um, and of course, in order to get to Ohio, you had to, you had to go through Pittsburgh. And I, Rosie felt it was in the stars. I had to pursue this. But Manessa Cutler was a, a, a classic 18th century polymath. He was interested in everything. He had doctoral degrees in theology, medicine, and law, and practiced all three during the course of his life. He was probably, no way to prove it, probably the leading botanist of his time, American botanist of his time. He was interested in everything. He ultimately became a member of Congress, but most importantly, he was the one single force, one human individual, who got the Congress before we had, in the summer of 1787, to pass what was known as the Northwest Ordinance. And the Northwest Ordinance was like no bill ever put before Congress before or since. One of the most important acts of Congress ever. And it's not taught in schools and people don't know about it. This was done before the Constitutional Convention? It was before the Constitution had passed. And we had no, no Constitution as yet, and we had no president as yet. The bill specified four principal things. First of all, complete freedom of religion. Secondly, that the Native Americans in, uh, in the area of the Northwest Territory would be treated with respect. And th thirdly, that there would be public education, public taxpayer-supported education from grade school through college. Hence, they gave rise to the first state universities, which was Ohio University which, of course, are now everywhere and taken for granted. No, no state, no part of our country had anything even equivalent or close to such an educational system. 
New England had a lot of schools, but many of them were not very good at all. But fourth, and most important, there would be no slavery. These people said, were determined, that we're not just going to put it down on paper and say in words, uh, all men are created equal. We're going to show we believe it. So there would be, they passed the law, there would be no slavery. And it would be the only part of our country where that was true, because there were slaves in all the 13 colonies. Who passed this? What kind of a, a governmental body? The, the, the Congress. Congress at the time, before the Constitution. So yes. Was, and how much did it pass by? Considerable. And miraculously. But then, later, and that was the doings of Manessa Cutler. He should be known, if, if he were to be known for any, nothing else, he should be known for that. About, let's see, about 10 or 15 years after this happened, I'm never very good at math, um, there was a movement, after Jefferson became elected president, there was a movement by the Jeffersonians in Ohio to cancel that rule of no slavery and to admit slaves. And the two people who led the fight to stop that were General Rufus Putnam, who was one of a very famous general, was Washington's civil engineer, if you will, built the forts, most of the forts that mattered so much, and a wonderful man with no education, virtually none. And he was battling not only for education, but for no slavery. And, and Manasseh Cutler's son, Ephraim, who had gone out to be one of the pioneers. And the day that there were, the vote was going to take place, Ephraim was lying in his room in a boarding house near the legislature and couldn't get out of bed. He was so sick. It was really on. Uh, it was it seemed to be almost his deathbed. And he told him, he can't, I can't get out of here. And Putnam came in, and Putnam was old enough to have been his father, came in and said, you've got to get out of bed and come and vote. This is going to be very close. So they somehow got him out of bed into the legislature. He not only cast his vote, but he gave a powerful speech about why this should never be retracted, this no slavery rule. The, and the vote was counted, and they won by one vote. Now, honestly, Brian, I think if that were a scene in a novel, let's say, the editor would probably say, well, this is a little too much. It's, it would never happen in real life. Yes, it did. Ephraim was carrying the banner of his father into the battle for his father and for his own beliefs, firm convictions and succeeded. And as a consequence, there was never to be any slavery in Ohio or any of the other four states that comprised the, the I, Northwest Territory. I want you to uh, uh, stay with me as I personalize this. All right. As I'm reading your book, I kept thinking about my own upbringing, and here's what I want you to deal with. I grew up on Shawnee Avenue in Lafayette, Indiana. And coming into Shawnee Avenue was Wyandotte Avenue. Mm -hmm. There's a school in Lafayette, an elementary school called Miami. There's a junior high called Tecumseh. 
There's a high school called William Henry Harrison. Right. I went to Jefferson High School and lived in Tippecanoe County on the Wabash River. And I don't think, and I, it's not unfair to my teachers because I had great teachers, I don't think they ever taught me anything about any of those names. And, and this book of yours has all those names in it. Well, in the state of Ohio, that's an Indian name. It's a Native American name. Um, so any of those characters in your book? Oh, yes. Um, those tribal Indian, those Native American tribes. What I think is not understood as well as it should be is how many different tribes there were. And they weren't all alike by any means. The Shawnees, for example, in Ohio, were much more quarrelsome and much more on the edge of real violence than were the Delawares. Uh, when the these pioneers first arrived, uh, Captain Pike, uh, Pike rather, greeted them at the landing place with about 70 other members of his tribe, women and children, welcoming them to Ohio. Um, now, the book I have written is based on what I found in this immensely important, colossal collection of original diaries, letters, memoirs, um, one, two books of history written by one of the five main characters in my book, all perfectly kept and filed, numbering in the thousands, literally. Where, I've never. Where, where were they? They were in the library of Marietta College. So it wasn't that they were all hidden away in some attic over five states or whatever, or a little bit in this university library, a little bit in that state archive. They were all in one place. And it wasn't just the quantity of the letters and diaries. It was the quality, the quality of the writing, the quality of the values expressed. And so I was... People often say, are you working on a book? And I say, yes, I am. What I really want to say, no, I'm not working on a book. I'm working in a book. I go into this subject, and I like to go in with the people who are the protagonists. And so you have to know them, and you can only know them by by letters and diaries and so forth. And, it, and as you well know, you come to know them better, in many cases, better than you know people in real life. Because for one thing, in real life, you don't get to read other people's mail. And here I am, not only reading their mail, but reading their in, most intimate diaries. And so you really know what they're worried about, what they're striving to attain, what they're suffering. And suffering is a very important factor in life. I've been reading David Brooks's new book, Second Mountain. Fascinating. And he makes the point in that book about the benefit of suffering. So out of this suffering comes a sense of purpose with these people that's admirable in the extreme. What their objectives are. They weren't in this for the money or to become famous or to have a lot of expensive, fancy possessions, wristwatches and the like. No. They were there <coughs> to establish a community and, and values that are of utmost importance for civilization. Excuse me. <laughs> and, and they stuck to it. Now, my five characters go 
on at length about all aspects of life from their personal experience. When they get to the subject of the Native Americans, that I include. When they are worried about there may be an attack, or when there is an attack 30 miles up the Muskingum River, where 14 people were slaughtered by um, a party of warriors, Delawares and Wyandots. When that happens, that's all part of my story. That's part of their story as they saw it. And so I'm not seeing the importance of the Native people or the contributions of the Native people or the mis mishandling, the mis mis misunderstandings that led to atrocities with the Native people unless my characters are involved. And they are involved only in the sense that because they treated the, the Native Americans of their territory, their area, with respect, they were never attacked. And so the, the Native Americans were respecting these people, holding back on a direct attack on them. And that's due pr primarily not just to the words on paper that are in the Northwest Ordinance, but by the leadership of Rufus Putnam, the general, who was really the one who made it all work. Um, and then the, 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 the youngest and therefore the, the last character in my narrative, which goes all the way up to the Civil War, is a doctor and physician named Samuel Hildreth. And he gave a speech in the 1830s at a medical convention in Cleveland in which he, in a sense, expressed a hymn of respect and, and, and acknowledgement of the importance of the Native Americans of that, of the Ohio's chronology, the Ohio history. So it, it wasn't that these people had no heart or no empathy. They did. I think a lot, Brian, about what are the lessons of history? And there's there many, is, to say the least. One of them is all, very little is ever accomplished, of a consequence is ever accomplished alone. It's a joint effort. And this is about the joint effort of the fir first legal settlement in all of this Northwest Territory. But two of the most important lessons in why history should be taught and required in our educational system are empathy and, gra and, gra and gratitude. To, we should be able to put ourselves in the place of those people who went before us and realize what they did and what the odds and the adversities were that they faced. And secondly, grateful. We, we all so much of what we have, we just take for granted, and that's rude as well as being uh, ignorant. Do I count right that this is your eleventh book? Twelfth. I'm missing one. <clears throat> I think it, I, I, I've counted all the ones in the front. Doesn't matter the number. But I want to. <clears throat> you had a lot of characters that you've written about in history. I want to go back over some of this. Great. 
Let's go back. Our first interview was in 1992. Yeah. This is short remembrance of Harry Truman. Let's right. watch this. When Eisenhower took the oath and when Truman walked down off the platform, he was, he was right back down on ground level again as Citizen Truman. He had no pension. He had no allowance for office space, no franking privileges, no Secret Service guards. Uh, his uh, only income was his Army pension, which was, I think, $119 a month. Since you said that, I've always thought that no other president went home. Well, Truman, as he once said, I tried to forget, never forget who I was, where I came from, and where I would go back to. And that speaks volumes about who he was. <clears throat> I think that we have to understand where people came from. Understand that the look and the smell and the feel of the terrain, because it's part of them, part of you, part of me, much more than we realize. Uh... Harry Truman never forgot who he was, never forgot that he'd never gone to college. They tried, when he first became president, to advise him of things he should do to make himself seem more sophisticated. He didn't do any of that. One of my favorite of all scenes in the Truman story is that um, he, he was about to appoint General Marshall as Secretary of State, George Marshall. And one of his young assistants, Clark Clifford, who was very bright and very important in Truman's presidency, said to him, privately, we were having a meeting in the Oval Office, he said, Mr. President, I think you should think twice about that. And Truman said, why is that? He said, because if you appoint George Marshall Secretary of State, in two or three months, people will start saying that he would make a better president than you are. And Truman said, he would make a better president than I am, but I'm the president, and I need the best help I can possibly get. Now, that's a guy that knows who he is, knows what his deficiencies are, can recognize ability and admirable uh, uh, performance of past endeavors when he sees it. Which one of the books that you wrote sold the most? I think, I'm not sure, I think it was 1776. Do you have any idea why? Short. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, yes, I think it's been used in a lot of schools, and I'm very proud of that. And it's a great, great subject. And, and of course, what makes it so great is George Washington, who would not give up. I write books about people who don't give up. Back in 2011, we talked about the Brooklyn Bridge mm -hmm. that uh, you wrote about. Let's watch this. I was introduced, this is David McCulley's writing a book about the Brooklyn Bridge. And she put her head back and she said, who in the world would ever want to read a book about the Brooklyn Bridge? And on the way home, I was practically punching the dashboard as I was driving the car. But before we got home, I suddenly dawned to me, She's, that's a perfectly good question. Who in the world would want to read a book about the Brooklyn Bridge? And what's your answer, McCullough? And my answer was, I would. <laughs> I've never undertaken a book on a subject I knew much about. And this is a confession that I'm only really willing to make public at this stage in my writing career. Um, <clears throat> because 
most histories and biographies, quite understandably, maybe most correctly, are written by people who specialized in that subject through their whole career, academics, uh, historians in, in particular. But if I knew all about the subject before I undertook the book, I wouldn't want to write the book. I, I, want, to, I want to write a book on a subject that I wish I knew more about. And I know that by writing a book about it, I'll learn an immense amount about it. To me, it's like going to a country I've never set foot in, or going on a, a, a detective case. Um, that's the adventure. And I try to look at all of it with a fresh eye. And very often, I, well, I've never not found something that either had been ignored or not known about or not discovered as yet. And this book, about the pioneers who established the first settlement in the Northwest Territory, is all material that nobody knows much of anything about because it had never been really looked at. You talked about Ohio, though, and some of the people we know better now. Yes. Back in 2015, when uh, you were doing a book uh, about the Wright brothers, yes. here's, a, here's a clip from uh, that interview. You notice I look just the same? These are pioneers. <laughs> pioneers of the age we live in. And I don't—it's to me, it's fascinating that Neil Armstrong also came from that same corner of Ohio, southwestern Ohio, a matter of only 50 miles or so from where the Wright brothers grew up, and that John Glenn also came from Ohio. Now, whether that's coincidental or there's something in the water out there in Ohio, I don't know. It's amazing. I can't really explain it. Uh, the, the Wright brothers first to fly, uh, John Glenn the first to circle the world, and then Neil Armstrong the first to land on the moon. And eight presidents touched that state in some way or another, either born there or... Oh, five of them, presidents. And, uh, and Edison, and um, the inventor of the cash register. I mean, you can go on and on. And med leaders in medicine, everything. And to me, it's a very intensely fascinating and, and endlessly interesting pocket of qualities about America that are as evident as, as any could be. long time ago, you said that you had given up television. Yes. And I want to show you a clip from 1987 <clears throat> where you were in a Nova uh, PBS uh, program talking about the Panama Canal, which you wrote a book about. Let's yeah. watch this. Death and injury were commonplace. Men were caught beneath the wheels of trains or struck by flying rock or blown to bits. Dynamite got tender from standing too long in the sun. premature explosion killed 23. In total, more explosive energy was expended in blasting through Panama than in all the wars the United States had fought until then. How many years were you in television, and how did you get in it in the first place? I think it was 12 years that I'd worked in television, but then I came back to do th some things for people that I liked working with. I first got in because 
um, when Ken Burns did his film about my book, The B Building of the Brooklyn Bridge, he asked me to narrate it. And that's what got me started. And then eventually I narrated the Civil War series with Ken. And then I was invited to be the host of a series called Smithsonian World, which I did for, I think, three years. And then I did the American Experience maybe for 12 years. I was in a long time, and I loved it. What was the impact <clears throat> on your visibility once you got into television? Oh, I suppose it was increased, but it was taking me away from what was really the objective of my work, my what I wanted to be my career, my contribution, and that's writing the books. Um, and I, the thing I liked best about doing television was the people I worked with. Wonderful, wonderful people. And who could stick to their the job when they were so sick they could hardly stand because of something they'd ate, eaten the night before, but were in the midst of the Grand Canyon and there's no, no other sound man anywhere near. And he showed up and did his job. And but, you know, I wanted to show you, remind you of the Civil War series, because if people haven't seen it, I want you to describe what it was. But here you are narrating that series back in, yep. let me see where it is, 1990. Let's, yep. let's watch. More than 3 million Americans fought in it. And over 600,000 men, 2% of the population, died in it. American homes became headquarters. American churches and schoolhouses sheltered the dying. And huge foraging armies swept across American farms and burned American towns. Americans slaughtered one another wholesale here in America. You worked with Ken Burns. How long did you spend on this? Well, I think, as I recall, it was the sponsors saw, I think originally it was going to be something like four hours or six hours. And then the sponsors saw it and they said, no, this has got to be increased. So we really had to tear it all apart and start over again. Worked on it a long time. But it was worth it, and of course the impact was tremendous. What was the impact? People realized what the country had been through, the suffering and the slaughter. And that's something we need to always remember. We've been through some terribly difficult, dark times, but we came out of it. We, we managed to survive, and, and in many ways we're better for it. When you think, for example, in the, epi the uh, influenza epidemic, of 1918-19, less than a year, over 600,000 people died in our country. Now, if that were to happen today, proportion to our population, there'd be about 2 million people. Now, imagine 2 million people dying in our country, and nobody knew how to get rid of it, nobody knew where it came from or how long it would stay. Can you imagine that on the nightly news, night after night? And we might get a little depressed and a little worried, but we came through it. What came out of that Civil War series, you think, as an impact on the country? We should never take, again, we should never take how our country has shaped, taken form, taken shape for granted. The suffering and the, and the patriotism that were involved.
Um, Back in 19... And then, of course, it affected our leadership from then on. I mean, uh, who got elected president and all that. And the fact that Abraham Lincoln comes out of the Northwest Territory, comes out of Illinois, the Ulysses S. Grant comes out of Ohio, and so forth, that's, that's not just by chance. And we need to understand that. You can never underestimate, Brian, the impact and the importance of luck. I think if somebody could teach a great course in American history on luck, good luck and bad luck. If the wind had been in a different direction in New York, when Washington and his army were trapped on Long Island, trapped at Brooklyn, that would have ended the war right then, if the British had been able to bring their fleet up the East River, because there was no way of getting off. And it, because, it, because the wind held through the night, and then when the wind started to ease off, and it would have been possible to bring the British fleet up the East River, a fog set in that made it possible for the remaining part of Washington's army to escape without loss of life. Unbelievable. And we, we can't just take that for granted. I've got to ask you, if you're anywhere in this clip, this is, goes back to 1962 and a movie called Advice and Consent. Somebody told me you might be in this clip somewhere, but I don't know whether, I couldn't find you. <laughs> Here in the heart of Washington, Otto Preminger films the Pulitzer Prize novel Advise and Consent. It's a story of the men and women who live and work in Washington, their private feuds and public conflicts, which affect the lives of everyone, everywhere. To tell this story, Preminger's cameras move in where no motion picture cameras have ever been permitted. In the very room which saw the Kefauver crime investigation and the McCarthy hearings, Preminger stages another controversial inquiry. A word of warning, these people are all fictional, so don't try to guess who they are. The myth is that you were in there as an actor. I was. <laughs> I was sitting at the, at the press, press table. I was a young reporter. I didn't have any lines. I was an extra, and I loved it. How did you get in that uh, movie? I applied for it. <laughs> what were you reporting at the time? I think that, what was, do you know the date of Yeah, that movie was 62. Yeah, I was working in the Kennedy administration then. I was in my 20s, and I heard that this was happening, and so I went, came up to see if I could get it <clears throat> apart, as it were. No speaking lines or anything, and I did. Every time you've been here, and I think this is our 13th interview, I've always uh, tried to get you to tell us about the next book that you're going to write. <laughs> Here's a clip of uh, you talking about this. We've, we've just 25 seconds. Do you have another book in mind? Well, I have several, but I haven't made a decision yet on what, what will be next. You have to live with these subjects day after day, and if you uh, aren't enthusiastic about the work... Uh, What's your inclination right now? I'm not going to talk about it. I don't. Maybe I missed it, but you didn't answer my question about whether you're going to do another book. No, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> do, uh, do you plan to do another book? Yes, I plan to keep writing. It's my life, and I love it. But what it will be, I don't know. I'm waiting for Mike Hill to find some good idea. <laughs> Mike Hill's with you today. Yes, he uh, is. And he did a show with us at one point when he did a book. Um, what role has he played in these books? 
He has been my research miracle. He, he is a master of historic research, and he's a joy to work with. We've been working together almost 40 years. <clears throat> and um, I was, as we were talking about earlier, I had moved to Washington to be the host of the Smithsonian series. This was in the early 80s. And I got a letter from this fellow who was then working on the Hill for one of the congressmen and um, saying that if I ever needed assistance with research, he'd love to help me. And a very nice letter. And I wrote back and said, which was the case, that I tried the help using the help of two or three uh, PhD candidates in history with not the success that I wanted. But I was so taken by his letter that I'd like to have lunch with him. So I took, he didn't realize I was in Washington. So we went to lunch, and I liked him immensely. And I said to him, I'll, if, if you'd like to, I'm going to give you an assignment. And I'm not, and he'd volunteered to help me without any fee. I said, I'm going to pay you for it, but let's see how you do. So I gave him an assignment. I don't remember exactly what it was. And he went to work on it, turned it in, and it was terrific. And I paid him, and I said, how'd you like to work with me from now on? And I was just starting the Truman book. And that book took 10 years. Um, and if it hadn't been for Mike's help, um, probably would have taken me, I don't know, four, four years longer. On the Truman book, what was the best thing that you found to help you write that book? The letters between uh, Truman and his wife, Bess. Um, no question. And then when we got going on the Adam's book, it was even more phenomenal. The letters between John and Abigail are some of the best anywhere. And I think that Abigail Adams is one of the great Americans. Uh, a great biography should be written about her. I felt I did pretty well with it, giving her front and center stage as often as possible. Um, my initial idea for that book was a book about Jefferson and Adams as sort of first co-workers, co-patriots, then rivals, then really enemies, and then they restore their friendship, and then they die incredibly on the same day, 4th of July. That doesn't happen in real life, right? Um, and anyway, <clears throat> I found... I knew quite a lot about Jefferson, and Jefferson destroyed every letter that he ever wrote to his wife and that she ever wrote to him. We don't even know what she looked like. And then I came upon the letters between John and Abigail Adams and was swept away by them. They number over a thousand. And I thought, and I knew very little about John Adams, and I thought, this is the book. I don't know much about him, but think what I'm going to learn. Speaking of that, i got to go back to your book, The Pioneers. Yes. And I want you to explain this. And just given the mood we have in our country today, I'll just read this pair, this sentence. But as Manasseh, who Manasseh, who is your principal 
in this book, also recorded, talking about Martha Washington, she talked of the election of Jefferson, whom she considered, quote, one of the most distasteful, no, no, detestable of mankind and the greatest misfortune our country had ever experienced. Mm. Surprised to find Martha Washington saying that? Yes, I was, very. Detestable? And, and we have to remember that. Um, and she she felt, she he had said some very derogatory, critical things about her husband. And she didn't like that, to her credit. Um, Jefferson's complicated. Jefferson, in this book, uh, Pioneers, does some things that, to my mind, aren't, weren't particularly admirable. And, um, for example, he was for the no slaves in Ohio bill. But when it came down to the time to vote, he backed off, and we didn't vote for it, because he said it would damage his political position in Virginia. Um, I mentioned to you earlier that I was <clears throat> from Lafayette, Indiana, and in your book, Lafayette, he appears yeah. in Marietta, which is a story yeah. that uh, I'm sure you can tell about. Why was he in Marietta, Marquis de Lafayette? Well, he came back for a return visit to the United States, and he did a tour that lasted more than a year. Went everywhere, and he was the, the hero of the of the day. And he came and stopped in Marietta, and the crowd turned out. Virtually the whole town turned out to greet greet him. It was one of the biggest moments which that town had ever had. And uh, he went on and, and sincerely about the veterans from the revolution who settled there, whom he knew and worked with as some of the finest men he'd ever known. And, of course, that that was playing the right song in Marietta. Oh, my hometown was named because he stepped yeah. into Indiana yeah. in 1825. Well, and <clears throat> Marietta was named for Marie Antoinette because the, the founders felt that she had done more even than Ben Franklin had done to get France, the king, to come in on our side and, and not only supply money we needed desperately, but to supply a military force. How many people in Marietta know that's why they have that name? I can't answer that one, Brian. Probably not as many as we would wish. Why was Aaron Burr in Marietta, Ohio? Looking for money. And he hit the jackpot with a strange gentleman named Blenner Hassett, who was from an aristocrat from Ireland who had inherited a lot of money. And because he'd married his niece, and that was not acceptable back home, he came to become a an American citizen with his wife, and because it was not marrying your niece was not acceptable in many parts of the East, they went west. It's one of the few examples that I know of of the, somebody escaping from uh, what was considered immoral uh, in order to start anew in the West. And they bought up most of one island about 12 miles down the river, down the Ohio, from Marietta, built what was then the most glorious mansion on the entire Ohio River. And Burr showed up, heard about him, went over and told him what his scheme was going to be and how when he started this new country, 
Blennerhauser would have a, a very important part in the government. And it was all a con man uh, offer. Blennerhauser fell for it, gave a lot of money to him so he could start building boats to take what he hoped would be his army down the river. And all of that scandal became known, and he had to, he, uh, Burr had to get going quickly out of town, and Blennerhassett and his wife followed very shortly after. Very, very strange. The, the, the spotlight of history hit that one area for about a total of maybe three months. Burr was there in less than three days, and but it left a mark that would never be forgotten. Got to check in with you on one last thing on video. This is from 2001, and want to know if this place is still something that you use that looks very familiar to you. And this is my, in effect, my walk to work. That's where I work right there. That measures uh, 12 by 8 feet. It has windows on all four sides. I absolutely love it. it has about 800 books in there, and my my faithful uh, typewriter, upon which I have worked uh, now since about 1965. I've written every book I've ever written on that old royal typewriter, and there's nothing wrong with it. It's really a, an example of a beautifully made American machine. Okay. Are you still st true. Still, is this it, one was written on that typewriter. In that chat. There's still nothing wrong with it, the typewriter. No, because three of our children we still have our home on Martha's Vineyard. That's still my office on my world headquarters on my Martha's Vineyard. But this book was written in Hingham, Massachusetts. We moved there because three of our children and their children were living there. And as you know, children are a big magnet, and particularly as you get older. And we love it there. It's one of the most interesting historic towns in America. It has the oldest Christian church still in use every day in all of our country, never not in use, called the Old Ship Church. And uh, and and it is part, one of the original pioneers who came out on the very first uh, venture was from Hingham. He was 19. Are you going to write another book? Too soon to tell. Um... And it has to hit me what my story is. And I have several ideas, but I'll let you know as soon as I know. Well, <laughs> kind of the last question is, 85 years old, Yes. why are you out pounding the pavement, talking to people, and what's life look like from your age? Better than ever. I love it. And knock on wood, I... Um, I'm ha I, I, I don't play golf, I don't go fishing, I don't play tennis or have a sailboat. Or, I have a sailboat, but I have to get one of my sons to just give me valet sailing. Um, because I love what I do. I love to get up every morning and get back to work. I just love it. And uh, I understand perfectly why the Wright brothers were so captivated with their job. I feel the same way. And I feel as lucky as anybody I know. And I have the most wonderful wife anybody could ever imagine. She is absolutely fabulous. She's my editor-in-chief. She's my 
chair of the ethics committee. She's my polar star. And uh, we've had a wonderful time. Have you dedicated? 60, for 65 years we've been married. We're off to a good start. Have, have you dedicated uh, every book to Rosalie? No, I de dedicated one of my books to my mother and father, and I've dedicated other of the earlier books to our children. But most all of my books have been dedicated to her. This book is called The Pioneers, the heroic story of the settlers who brought the American ideal west. Our guest has been David McCullough, and we thank you very much. Brian? You have created a marvelous career yourself, and you have done something with television nobody else has done in a way that nobody else has done it. And you deserve far more praise, credit, and, and lasting fame than you realize. Well, the chance to listen to people like you and the historians over the years has made it worth it just like you it's easy to get up every day and i thank you so That's much absolutely all q and a programs are available on our website or as a podcast at cspan.org